Welcome to Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. And in this week's episode, we speak with Soraya Darby, founding partner of New York-based seed fund TMV. Founded in 2016, TMV looks to lead investments in the future of work, healthcare, and ed tech. Prior to starting TMV in 2016, Soraya worked in a senior media role at the New York Times and then started her own venture-backed startup. She also hosts a very successful podcast called Business Gold. On the show, Soraya gives her views on fundraising from LPs, how she thinks about building unique value to entrepreneurs through the use of operating partners, and what she believes are the most important things to think about when operating a venture firm. So without any further delay, let's get into the show to hear all of that and more. Soraya, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, Samir, thank you so much for having me. So we will get into a lot of things as we drill into the background of yourself, Trail Mixed, and now TMV. But let's start off with your journey into venture. You started off in media, then started two companies, and then started uh, TMV in 2016. What led to um, you getting into venture? It was a long journey into venture. I think if you had asked me when I finished undergrad at Georgetown, uh, with a double major in English and art history, if I would be a venture capitalist, I probably would have asked you to define what venture capitalist meant. And yet it all feels very natural and fluid. Um, as you mentioned, I started off my career in media. I worked for Condé Nast in their digital department, which was called Condé Net at the time. And my very first task, my first month on the job was to wi- write a press release that says Wired acquires Reddit and to help Condé Net internally um, explain that acquisition to an aspirational media company. And I became fluent in social media and spent a lot of time translating what the Web 2.0 era, as it was just sort of at the brink of being called that, uh, meant to you know a 100-plus-year-old institution. And the New York Times called two years later and said, basically, would you do the same thing for us? And I became the first manager of social media and digital partnerships at the New York Times. Very lucky break for a 23-year-old. I was there for three years. We were the first media brand and ultimately first brand in the world to partner with Facebook, Foursquare, and YouTube, and Twitter, and Vimeo, and Tumblr, and a lot of social media startups that I don't think anyone could really name that fell by the wayside. But as a result of being at the forefront of that intersection between um, social media and media, you know, the convergence of the two, I became very friendly and very well connected with venture capitalists and with tech founders. And and the easiest way to describe it is just to say, I've um, literally helped tech founders who go by one name meet their wives. You know, I helped um, informally companies like Square back when it was called Squirrel, um, you know, beta test on on different devices. And so it was a really interesting place to be in. And I was craving uh, product development and startup experience um, by watching my friends uh, literally create unicorns. And so I left my job at the New York Times to work for a cloud computing startup called Drop.io. Drop.io is a lot of people call it. And, you know, life is cyclical because our venture partner at TMV, Darshan, was actually the co-founder of Drop.io. So I worked for him informally. And that company, not thanks to me, I was there for only six months, but that company was ultimately acquired by Facebook. And that was sort of the experience that I was looking for, except in a much shorter time span. Um, I then uh, co-founded an application called Food Spotting, social mobile local application uh, that was helping the world define how to find the best dish, not just the best restaurant. The most succinct way to describe food spotting is, you know, we were at the earliest infancy of social, mobile, and location, um, the first geolocation app in the app store is a nice way to put it. Our office was across the street from um, Kevin's original Instagram office in Soma, California. And we were beloved by a lot of users. Uh, we were Apple and Wired's app of the year. 
So that company raised venture capital from everyone from Felicia's Ventures, a firm I'm a huge fan of, um, to Blue Run for the Series A and ultimately sold to OpenTable. And then later Priceline bought OpenTable and with it, food spotting. So how did I become a venture capitalist? Well, that's how I segued from media into entrepreneurship. And then from there, I had my first liquidity moment as a 27-year-old. And so I was able to um, begin writing angel checks into companies that I thought were interesting and uh, audacious and sometimes non-obvious. And um, as an early angel investor in companies like Casper and Gimlet Media and Figs, um, I saw some really terrific exits. And a lot of those companies were companies whereby VCs wouldn't immediately think them as being venture backable. I mean, obviously they are, they're massive successes, but um, at first blush, they didn't necessarily look like the norm. And so I came in as an investor who a lot of startups, especially in New York City, would talk to pretty early on to say, how do we shape our story, given your media background or given your marketing background? You know, how do we market ourselves in a way that becomes defensible against our competitors? And I think that's how I was able to, um, you know, come into the cap table earlier than most. And I translated that uh, track record into becoming a VC about eight years later. And so, um, you know, TMV formed eight or nine years after I wrote my first angel check. So TMV, if I have this right, started in 2016. It was yourself, Marina, as the two GPs. What I really love about talking to people that have started funds over the last 10 years is just the wide diversity of backgrounds that people have before starting a venture firm. And you're certainly no exception to that. When you did start TMV, was there a particular ethos drawing from your experiences in media and, and as an entrepreneur that you and Marina wanted to build a firm around? Absolutely. Marina and I have known one another uh, for 17 years. We went to undergrad together. You know, for those who don't know her, she's really spectacular. She's um, a wonderkund. She began her career working for investor relations at some boutique firms in New York and then went into the family business. In her case, that happens to be maritime shipping. And um, she's Greek. Marina spent um, some time after school um, getting her sea merchant's license at the Merchant Marines Academy and then took a year off to move to South Korea um, and to work at the Hyundai port um, on one of her family's ships, leaving on their maiden voyage and, and working from the grounds up in a boiler suit with an all-male uh, ship base. So it was pretty spectacular that Marina found her way to venture capital, but her company, her family business, um, saw some immense success over the past decade. And uh, she eventually moved to Singapore and then London and Greece and, and home, which for her is here in New York, to help her father uh, with the international roadshow that ultimately took their family business public. So her family business went public twice, first on the Norwegian Stock Exchange and then um, in 2014, the New York Stock Exchange. Marina also started her family office. Um, and so that's not entirely unknown in terms of a track, uh, in terms of a background that leads into venture capital. There's a lot of people who spin out of family offices, but her background is especially unique in the sense that, you know, she's worked in an industrial business that has um, a market cap of a billion. And um, we came together because Marina um, is an active member of Gangels and she was seeing some terrific deal flow and, and wanted my take as her friend from undergrad with a decent track record as an investor. And this was in 2015. We began meeting on the regular to talk about how we would invest differently were we to start a firm together. And, and um, we decided that Marina should spin out of her family office and, and to join me as my fellow general partner in starting a firm that's dedicated to the values that we care most about, 
purpose-driven investing, investing with a thorough lens for diversity, um, but not with a gender lens or an exclusive mandate. We simply say at TMV, we invest in companies that reflect the way the world actually looks. And for us, that means we invest in a spectrum of startups and a spectrum of founders who, because of their diverse backgrounds, are better equipped to build the businesses that they're building. And uh, we are a purpose-driven fund. So some people call us impact investors, which we're absolutely thrilled to be called. And we just say we're, you know, series seed and series A investors who are former operators. The five five partners in the firm are former operators who um, have a penchant toward investing in good. So based on that, it's very clear that the team that you put together early on, it was very impressive, very experienced. And I'm curious on how that translated into the first fundraise itself. In 2015, we started to see the proliferation of more managers coming to market. At the time, there was very few female-led firms. We'd love to hear how that first fundraise went. You know, I was cautiously optimistic with Marina um, entering into the fundraise process for our first fund. We set out in 2016 to pre-market a fund that we aimed would be um, a $10 million vehicle, a micro fund, but what's also known in our industry as a proof of concept fund. And we modeled that after funds that we admired that started at roughly the same size. Um, something I saw you tweet about recently, Samir, uh, you know, Lair Ventures and Thrive and a few other funds that we're friendly with, ENIAC, of course, all began as sub $10 million funds. And we leveraged Marina's track record in scaling and, and taking a business public and my track record with a 172% realized IRR on SPVs and 82% IRR on angel investments across you know, nine years. We thought that that would be enough. And I almost say that with a chuckle now because that fundraise was so incredibly painful. It, it dwarfs any kind of pain I experienced as a minority woman founder raising capital for my first or second startup. I mean, it was just bad. We ended up raising capital from friends, from tech founders that had demonstrable exits, from a couple of institutional family offices um, that you know really took a bet on us. But you'll smile when I say this. Our first fund had 67 LPs, and it took us two years to raise it. The average fund um, is raised in 18 months. And, you know, we just couldn't get it done in 18 months, but we did. We were oversubscribed. We closed on 11.2 million and set out to invest in 25 companies that we would help mentor with our experience as founder operators and truly lean into for you know the first 20 months of infancy. What did you learn from the Fund One fundraise? You mentioned it was painful, and I hear that very, very commonly for people that are starting as first-time managers. But what specifically about it do you look back and say, I wish we did things in a different way? I think if you're a founder, especially today, but certainly, you know, um, 12 years ago when I was a founder for the first time, it's pretty easy to find a blueprint online, to sort of walk yourself through the unknown unknowns of raising capital. You know, back in the day, we had um, something called the Venture Hacks Bible, which I think has been updated and you can still find it if you're a founder. And it just basically tells you everything you need to know about how to raise a seed round of capital as a founder and from whom and, you know, what the cap table breakdown will look like and how to avoid being overly diluted and your choices between a safe and a convertible note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is nothing like that. Uh, although these materials are being made by friends of ours at Recast and Operator and, and elsewhere, all rays um, that are trying to remove the opaqueness from raising a first-time fund. But if you're not a spin-out, which means if you're not a partner or a principal 
at a large institutional VC, whereby it's part of your job to network with the LPs of that firm. And then you spin out of that firm, ideally with one or two of your LPs backing you as an anchor, potentially even the firm itself backing you. If you don't have that pedigree, it's especially difficult to raise a first-time fund. You're, you're left speaking to high net worth family offices, and sometimes they don't want to be found. Those family offices, they, they really value their privacy. And so you end up becoming a professional salesperson. For me, that wasn't necessarily the most natural pivot. I feel much more comfortable in that domain now. But, um, but especially as a woman, um, selling yourself 24-7 isn't necessarily what I thought being a fund manager would be. And five years later, I recognize, oh yeah, that's, that's half the battle. It certainly is. And I want to talk about something I think a lot about, and that's first-time managers or fund one managers going on to a fund two and crossing that chasm to being more institutional in nature with institutional LPs. You're a unique edge case in that you had four, almost five years between funds. What were the internal KPIs that you looked at to say, what we're doing here is actually working? Tangentially to that, what were some of the metrics that your LPs in Fund 2 or your prospective LPs in Fund 2 were looking at in evaluating you as a potential investment? No, that's a really great question. And um, I think hidden in that question is a compliment because you're insinuating properly, I think, that you know we didn't rush to raise a second fund, honestly, as soon as we could. What did we do between 2016 and 2020? We focused on the work. We knew that the fastest way to raise a substantiated second fund is to have a terrific track record with our two clients. And, and we think we're in the service industry at TMV. So Marina and I have clients on two sides of the marketplace, our LPs, our investors. And I mentioned we have a lot of them and, and a couple of them are institutional. And so they demand a lot from us and, and we respect that. And then we also have clients that are our portfolio founders, and we promise them that we will be a hybrid of Jerry Maguire meets Coach Boone meets Aaron Brockovich meets Mr. Rogers. We promise we'll be kind and informative. We promise that we'll um, you know, treat them like they are our only clients, um, that we will be motivational, and um, we will hustle and persevere until we reach our end goal. And for us as seed investors, that's you know a top-tier institution leading their Series A. So in order to be good stewards of capital to the LPs and great partners to the founders, we couldn't distract ourselves by giving, as general partners, Marina and I, ourselves yet another job. Because fundraising is full on, and you have to be in the mindset for that. So what did we do? We introduced Henry the Dentist to Forerunner, their Series A lead. Um, We introduced the wing to Kleiner Perkins, uh, who came into the Series A. Uh, we mentored uh, and coached a lot of our founders that were going through particularly tricky co-founder issues. Um, we remodeled and rebudgeted for some of our companies that were not preserving their capital well. We rolled up our sleeves in so many different ways. And when, when, when LPs ask us, how do you add value? I sometimes think, oh gosh, where do we start? Because you're sort of better off if you just say one thing. We're the BD fund or we're the engineering fund or the product fund or the CFO fund. But at the end of the day, our five general partners have built really drastically different businesses. You know, we have six exits between the five founders, uh, including my partner, Darshan, who sold an ed tech company to Chegg for um, quite a large amount that's public, to Julia, who ran a $100 million P&L for General Motors and, and now started a scooter mobility company in Florida, to, you know, my partner, Evan, who sold two startups, two venture-backed startups by the time he was 30. 
And so with all of this experience under our belts, you know, we, we couldn't limit ourselves to just doing one thing well. And we got a little too giddy and a little too excited and, and just tried to be there 24 seven for, for the founders, but also for the investors, especially the family offices, what they want are direct investment opportunities. And so we made sure that 25 out of the 25 times when our companies were raising up rounds, they had the ability to invest alongside us. And they took us up on that quite a few times. So we've, we've done a few SPVs out of fund one as well. So um, long story short, we got to work. And luckily, with all the thousands of people who are raising seed funds right now, um, we're in good standing with LPs. We're having a, a significantly easier time raising capital because we can give them a Rolodex of any of the founders we've invested in fund one or from our angel track records. And we can tell them to call up any LP, most of whom are coming back into our second fund. And we're letting them vouch and reference for us as opposed to just pointing to unrealized IRR or, you know, made up um, figures in the deck that may look good on paper, but are unsubstantiated. And I'm so glad you brought this up, that your product really is a service that you provide to your founders. And it's much more than the commodity, which is the capital that you're providing these companies you're investing in. You mentioned that there is a series of things that you add value across the entire team, given the experiences here. But as you look at your core product, if a founder is coming into the door of TMV and, and becoming a portfolio company, how do you systematize that? Only recently did we create a cadence to appropriately allocate our bandwidth so that we weren't bleeding ourselves dry and, and doing a disservice to the founders in our portfolio who were maybe less proactive in asking for help. So um, we think the appropriate cadence is being board observers uh, for the most part. On two occasions, we become board seat members, but we try to give up those board seats by the Series A. But we find companies when they're literally ideas on a napkin. And so, you know, we, we're very transparent in terms of the give get. Um, our floor ownership is 10% and we need that board observer role, role at minimum. Um, and we need permanent information rights. And there's a few other things that are fairly standard that we, we put into the term sheets every time. But what do you get as part of this transaction? More than just capital, as you put it earlier, you get counsel. And that looks like um, bi-weekly check-ins at minimum. We'd be much happier with weekly with the partner at our firm that is taking that observer role, as well as um, 24-7 counsel as you need it from um, our deal team. And we um, make sure that we are setting up their board for success. And so we work backwards from a Series A based on their industry. We take comps as to what successful Series A companies look like 20 months post a seed round. Um, and then we work backwards in those board me meetings saying, how do we get to the KPIs that you're going to need to put your best foot forward with, you know, the foundation capitals of the world? And that has been a really, really successful blueprint for us. Um, and then we do monthly community gathering events in a pre-pandemic world. Uh, one of our investors is a shareholder in Hudson Yards. And so we're lucky to have free space, beautiful space at Hudson Yards. And, and we'll do a monthly breakfast where all we need to do is bring bagels and coffee. And then we um, cap the events to 75 persons. We make sure that some of our LPs are in invited and they're inter interacting with uh, the companies, our portfolio, but only when they have a value they can add. And similarly, we invite founders outside of our network, as well as um, some investors at private equity firms and, and VC firms that we'd like to mark up our deals so that they can socialize with our companies without putting the pressure on the founders to feel as though they're meeting these VCs um, as their one silver bullet shot at potentially getting marked up. And this kind of light socializing um, is really effective because when these founders then are ready to go up for the Series A, 
um, we warmly back channel and we say, you know, I think you should be talking to, and, um, and those VCs will proactively reach out in their minds to usurp the series A or to get a first look. Um, but because that invitation sort of indicates that it needs to be inbound, um, we see a much higher success rate of our portfolio companies actually, you know, winning the coveted series A that they're looking for. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not implying that this is a crony industry, but it is a relationship-based industry. A lot of what we do is predicated on solid relationships. And so at TMV, we promise community, capital, and counsel. Something that struck me that you said earlier is that you started off with five founders, but up until fund two, the AUM or assets under management were 11.3 million. How did you make that work? We offer our venture partners, um, you know, a certain percentage uh, on a per deal basis of the companies they sit on the board of. And it worked because, um, and they're very open about this too, our venture partners are LPs in our fund. And so they already had skin in the game. And in most instances, we've known those venture partners for years and years and years. I don't think you can just go out to a successful founder that's had a demonstrable exit and say, hey, come join my firm, put in money sit on some boards and, and maybe there's upside for you. I think uh, it's a testament to our ongoing relationships with you know three of the best in the business that they would take a chance on TMV when I know for a fact um, they've been invited um, in more senior roles to larger private equity institutions and in some instances, competitive VC firms. But what they get out of TMV are key learnings, um, terrific top of funnel, the ability to be part of a purpose-driven vehicle, um, which is really important to all three of them. And, and we give them free reign to do what they do best, which is to mentor and to coach founders. You know, never underestimate, I'd say for anyone listening who's a GP in, in the wings, never underestimate um, a successful founder's love of the game and, and what they'd be willing to do for a first-time fund manager if they truly do love mentoring and, and love being an operator. So with that being said, are there things that you do as a firm structurally to ensure that these venture partners are consistently engaged in a way to give the maximum lift to your portfolio founders? Two of the three are with us every single week for our partners meetings. And that's simply because of the conversation we had from day one as to, you know, what would be in it for them in terms of, you know, the quid pro quo. And one of the partners is brought in when she is specifically looking at a mobility deal given her background, um, which is electronic vehicles. So we are very, very careful to loop our partners in um, on a weekly basis. So they are aware of everything that we're looking at. And then in those meetings, we talk about their most recent um, biweekly or monthly check-in calls with the founders that they're assigned to. We don't give the venture partners more than um, one or two deals a year. Two is rare. So it's a slow ramp up for them to feel like they're being stretched too thin. And then we we have a group Slack and we have a team text thread. So for instance, today, Darshan uh, published an article on TechCrunch about his experience um, starting an ed tech company, running it for 10 years without raising a penny of venture and, and selling it for uh, tens of millions of dollars. I mean, lucky break. But he published that on TechCrunch. And you know what, what is remarkable is that he wanted to share that article with the team first. And, and we gave him feedback. He's a terrific writer. And then, of course, we share that from the TMV platform. So, you know, the way we operate is like a family, a very small family. And um, any venture partner would be lucky to be a part of this close-knit community. But we don't um, bring venture partners on too frequently. So for those who are thinking about doing it, I'd say follow our model. We, for two years, only worked with Evan Ray. He's been with us for four years now. And then in year three, we brought in Julia. And in year four, we brought in Darshan. And I think next year, you know, 
we'd be very lucky to bring on a venture partner, somebody that we've been discussing um, this role with. But again, it's a slow ramp up so that our founders are are receiving you know quality and care. The other thing that I've noticed about your construct and in, in bringing in people and even starting is the focus on diversity. I think two thirds of the team is minority or female. Tell us a little bit about you know how intentional was this, and if so, what are the specific benefits you've experienced as a firm having so much diversity on the team? I'll answer that question in two ways. What are the benefits and what are sort of the, the ways in which we're, we're discounted? Um, everyone knows the statistic that um, in 2019, female founders raised only 2.8% of venture capital. But there's a whole wealth of data that um, hasn't been brought to light in as prolific of a way about how few funds are raised by women and or minorities. And so Marina and I are a double minority team. Fewer than, I think it's, I think the exact statistic is 0.007, 007. That's how I remember it. Uh, of all funds are run by Middle Eastern women. <laughs> so, you know, we run so few, it's, it's hysterical. And then, um, you know, Marina is part of the LGBTQ community. And so from the get-go, we knew that if we wanted to invest in diverse founders, which we've done 77% of the time, um, we'd have to walk the walk ourselves and, and do so very willingly. And so it was important for us to get uh, people of color, women uh, in particular, as part of our firm. And uh, and we're very lucky um, that our team is uh, a united color of Benetton ad. But it's also a, a selfish um, sort of construct because they have different sources of deal flow that will only benefit us. And we want we invest all across the country. We invest in non-obvious geographies in Atlanta, Georgia, Baltimore and Austin, Texas. It's how we get into great deals. It's how we get great valuations. And we'd only be able to do so if our team um, was geographically disparate as well. So Keita is our uh, on our deal team uh, operating out of Cambridge, and she sends us great deal flow from Harvard Business School, but also from you know where she's from, which happens to be the same hometown as Evan, Cleveland, Ohio, and so on and so on. And how has it helped or hurt us? I think it's helped us only this year. Um, because there is so much talk around the fact that emerging fund managers that have diverse backgrounds are underrepresented by institutional LPs. And so it's at least allowing us to get a foot in the door. I think it actually has hurt us that we're not thematic. Um, and what I mean by that is we're huge fans of Harlem Capital, uh, which is um, a Black-run team investing in minority and women founders. And we have very similar mandates today, but, but we don't invest exclusively. Um, we, we say that the majority of the time we invest with a diverse lens. And so if people can't put you in a specific box, they can't check off a box like, oh, that's my woman fund that invests only in women. Then you have a harder time explaining your story to institutional LPs that have that mandate. And the second sort of thing that's been troubling is that sometimes we'll go to LPs that happen to have a diversity pocket. But we're not going to them for that diversity capital, because if they have a special sleeve of capital that is for women or minority fund managers, typically those checks are maybe a third of the size of what their normal LP investment would be for just finding, you know, top quartile fund managers, period. And we are, according to PitchBook, a top quartile fund. So we go into those institutions saying, we'd like to talk to John, the CEO. And they say, talk to Sally. She's running our diversity pocket. And we'll smile and say, we'd love to talk to Sally in addition to John. You don't always get the benefit of the doubt. Typically, as female fund managers, um, you just get doubt. It's an interesting point with all of the uh, discussion right now about backing underrepresented managers, having more female representation at the GP level at larger firms. 
What I'm hearing, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that from an institutional LP side, there's more talk and discussion than there is action. Do you see that changing? And what are some calls to action that you would make from a GP to an LP? I'm very hopeful that we will soon have LP mandates for responsible investing. And this is a term that I've been coining on Twitter that I hope picks up because I'm not trying to create the affirmative action or equal opportunity quota or or mandate for our industry. But I do think that the status quo is not working. You know, we've known for years now how little capital trickles down to female founders or, or minority founders. And if you want, you know, a reminder of some of the statistics, which are really bleak, you know, only one in four startups has a female founder and, and only 37% of all startups globally have at least one woman on the board. And yet 40% of businesses in America are owned by women and 64% of new women-owned businesses across the board in the U.S. are started by Black women. So there's an inverse relationship between, you know, the people and, and the genders that are starting businesses and the capital they're receiving from institutional venture funds. I think the issue is that there isn't pressure or enough pressure yet, although it's coming from endowments, pensions, fund of funds, et cetera, to put capital into funds that have a diverse lens. And when pressed, I asked a university endowment about this this week. I said, you know, why, why don't you have a mandate? They said, well, we just look for great returns uh, and, and we're not looking for a diversity quota. I said, fair, but there's no evidence. In fact, the evidence points towards the opposite, that if your portfolio is diverse, as first-run capital uh, reported um, at the beginning of last year, you're actually likely to have a higher IRR. You're like, so actually allowed to have better exits. And in turn, women have been known to do more with less. And so if there's that unconscious bias that, you know, creating a diversity mandate from an LP standpoint uh, for GPs, let's say the mandate is if we're giving you this $10 million investment into your second fund, 50% of those dollars need to trickle down to women or minorities or both, you know, the endowments think, well, that's actually going to, to hinder their returns. And, and I think quite the opposite. I think it'll bolster them. So we need to do a better job as GPs of um, being transparent with our data. And we need some sort of universal force. Maybe it's you, Samir, who, you know, shows proving to the data that, you know, these, these minority operated funds do a much better job of investing across the board in diversity. And because of that, you know, we're actually winning in the long run. So that would be my hope for the industry. My hope is that um, there's pressure from the LP side. And over time, this becomes a mandate. And I would encourage GPs to be vocal about this um, during their fundraise and, and particularly GPs that have had top, top, top 0.1% success, you know, the Chris Sockas of the world and, and the Rogers of IA Ventures, and they've done a great job. So I'm, I'm naming them intentionally because they are champions for diverse fund managers like myself. But we need more allies and advocates out there of people who are willing to say enough is enough. To that end, we are fortunately seeing a lot of first-time managers be minority or female. What would you give as a piece of advice for you know somebody that is minority or female starting out as a first-time fund and, and raising their first fund? If you're a woman, my first bit of advice is to join a group that I began with Marina uh, now three years ago called Transact. And very proud of Transact. And thank you for speaking to us, Samir. Um, we are a group of now 92 emerging female fund managers that gathers daily in a WhatsApp group, sporadically um, via Slack, and weekly through a Google Meet conference call, whereby we bring LPs, 
Um, so shout out to Angela Matheny of Colonial Consulting and um, incredible speakers in the past who have come and talked to us, Low Tony of Plexo, uh, too many to name. Uh, we bring in uh, GPs of substantial Series A funds um, to talk to us about the metrics they need to see to be able to anoint a seed company into uh, an institutional Series A round. So uh, people like Karen Norton and and, uh, and others have, have joined us on these calls. And then we also bring in vendors um, to talk us through what looks standard on a term sheet. So, so in numerous lawyers, but most recently Ed Zimmerman, uh, Lowenstein Sandler have come and spoken to us. And we welcome from all around the world. We now have members in Venezuela, that's Evo Capital, Dubai, a blockchain fund in Hong Kong, uh, Sista, uh, which is a, a group of angels in Paris, um, Station F in Paris. And it, it's, it's really become global fast. And it's because there is um, a dearth of knowledge for these women who typically um, raise sub $10 million funds for the first time. Uh, a first-time fund raised by a woman is likely to be, I believe, statistically one-fourth the size of a first-time fund raised by a man. And that's that's just too bad, but it, it is the case. And so the reason I created Transact was to level the playing field because I think information is power. And by bringing experts in as speakers and inviting anyone who wishes to come to hear them out, what we're really doing subvertly is arming women with the power they need to bolster their fundraising efforts. Yeah, it's such a great group of people that you put together as part of the community. And it was an honor for me to speak to such a talented group of investors. And it's another ray of optimism in fostering the appropriate amount of diversity that we need in venture. Shifting to our final segment, which is our heat check segment. And I have two questions for you, rapid fire. The first question is, what is your biggest career mistake that you've made? And what did you learn from it? My biggest career mistake was trying to have a portfolio career too soon. When I was 27, um, I landed on the cover of a business magazine, which was great. It was Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business Issue. And with that, for anyone who's listening that wants to know what it's like to be on the cover of an international magazine, um, a lot of opportunities come to you all at once and then they don't. And so I made the mistake of trying to seize upon all those opportunities at the same time. I, I inked a one-year deal talking about technology for ABC News and was co-founding a startup at the same time. And needless to say, it was burnout fast. And so what I've learned in the 10 years since is that the right opportunities will come to you at the right time. But um, there's a lot of power in the word no. And the word no actually means um, you know, unconsciously that you're reinvesting time into yourself, which is your most precious commodity. Yeah, it's great advice. You mentioned Roger Ehrenberg and Chris Saka, who have been phenomenal investors. And Roger was on the show a few episodes ago. But is there an, an investor that you admire, you aspire to be? Who would that be and, and why? Yeah, you know, I've never told him this. So I hope he listens to the episode. But um, it's Aiden Senket of Felicia's Ventures. He was on the board of Food Spotting. That's when I initially met him in Soma. He was, you know, on the board from the seed round. And we've stayed in touch since. He was probably the first person that gave me confidence in my network and in my ability to invest in my peers. And when he'd come to New York, where I was based at the time we met, um, you know, he'd invite me to have breakfast and to show him the deals that I was spotting. And it's funny because about a decade later, um, I mean, we've seen each other at conferences and so on since, but a decade later, he said to me, I still remember the first two deals that you told me I should invest in. And I won't name them because that's not fair to Aiden, but one of them was marked up by Sequoia pretty significantly and, and he passed. And, and he's like, You're, my instinct was right. You did have a good network. And so 
I like Aiden very much because I remember him as being a generous and sincere board member. And I remember him being benevolent with his time. You know, he's an operator like I am. He came from Google. He had a humble fund um, in terms of the amount that he could have raised for a first time fund, but he's had home runs. He was, you know, the earliest investor in Shopify, no big deal. And so when, when you have that humility coupled with access and, and the desire to roll up your sleeves and help a company, I think that combination is winning. And um, yeah, so I've never told him that, but I think the investor I admire is Aiden. I'm sure he'll be uh, incredibly happy to hear that. He's been not only incredibly successful, but somebody that has inspired so many different people. I totally agree with that. And what a lot of people don't know is Aiden with Felicis, his first fund was actually $4.6 million. So very, very humble beginnings to, uh, to what he's created, which is um, such an exciting part of that venture an emerging venture in, in particular. But Sarai, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Samir. This has been a lot of fun. I hope your listeners you know, derive some value from our talk today. And, and thank you for creating this podcast because I'm a big fan and, and I'm learning a lot from it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. And I really hope you enjoyed the show. To learn more about Soraya or TMV, go to iTunes or Spotify where you'll find detail notes from the show. While you're there, please rate and review. It really, really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 